ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, here with Steve Wittart on the Monday after the NASCAR Cup Series playoff race at Talladega Super Speedway, where you're at the NBC Sports Charlotte studio. Stevie here, about to do NASCAR America Motormouths, to talk about what I think you would agree was a pretty decent super speedway race if you're into really compelling moves by really good drivers in the draft. Because I think what we saw, Stevie, is the race came down to two best drivers, I thought, in the race. Ryan Blaney wins stage one, Chase Elliott wins stage two, and then the duel for the win comes down to both of those guys. You know, it was the same dish that's always served at Talladega, just a different flavor. I mean, that's how I would explain it. It's not completely different. It's not like all of a sudden the draft didn't matter. It's it, it, You know, it's still speedway racing, in my opinion. Um, I thought it was a captivating race. I thought that it was a difficult race for the drivers to try to navigate, to figure out where to be at the right time, where to make the right moves. I didn't need any more carnage. We had one single car wreck with the 7 and one multi-car wreck with the 21. But in the end, I think this bingo ball approach of speedway racing has kind of morphed into this new storyline that I don't really like. This whole, you know, I do think it is unpredictable. Uh, and in our production meeting, I think Brad Doherty said it the best. You know, you have to be lucky to get to the finish of the race at Talladega, but you shouldn't have to be lucky to win it. And that that's that's a very differing thing. You have to be lucky not to get caught up in somebody else's mess for 495 miles. But when I watch the final five miles, I want to see the guy who, who performs the best, who makes the best decisions, who understands what he's doing. And I'm 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 not completely ignorant to the fact that it's, you know, his decision could be good or bad by what somebody else does, right? But, you know, it's still a ripple-down effect, but it isn't random. Like, right. what we saw in that green-white checker is not randomness. Like, you and I aren't going to go do it. <laughs> and that's really the key. Like, it gets positioned where you and I could go do it. Right. And I think that's unfair to the drivers that are asked to go do it. I think it's not random. And, and what we saw were the best stock car drivers in the world proving who was the best at that style of racing. 100% agree. I mean, Ryan Blaney made a move to win stage one, I believe around Hamlin. Chase Elliott made a move on his teammate, Kyle Larson, to win stage two, essentially just hung him out and cutthroat. But hey, he won the stage, picked up the extra playoff point. And then the closing laps, Chase Elliott certainly made the really aggressive move to get in front of Eric Jones in the 43 to get the push he needed to win. Is there something about Blaney and Elliott that you think makes them good chess players? Well, I'll add that before speeding penalty, we had the six-time Talladega winner, Brad Kozlowski, in second. Yeah, good point. Off yeah. from pit road, yeah. behind Ryan Blaney, in second. It's in, the same guys. The it's, so that's yeah. that's my point, is is the list is, I got Hamlin, Blaney, Chase, Brad, Harvick was up there. You know, there are these guys. So Blaney's just really good at it. You know, when I watch him out the window, he is really efficient. His blocks are reasonable not overkill. He knows when it's time to give up a spot. It's really good watching him get to the end of a couple of the stages are really like the beauty of it. And Dale Jr. and I had this debate on when Ryan Blaney lost stage 
two, I think it was. You know, and the blah. No, it was Hamlin. Hamlin losing stage one was the debate. Right. When Blaney beat him to the line. Right. There was communication from Hamlin's crew chief to the spotter that said something like, hey, you said he wasn't going to get there in time. Obviously, he did. And it might have sounded accusational. It didn't to me. It sounded to me like something they had been working on during the week where it was like, hey, you and Denny need to review that because politely from Pitt Road, you were wrong. It could have been avoidable. Your information was yeah. wrong or <laughs> Denny's choices were wrong or yeah. the combination of your information and his decisions lost us that stage. Not, nah, nah, you were wrong. I'm mad at you. It's, hey, in 120 laps, we're going to do it again for all the money. So let's review what we're doing. Let's dress rehearse. Right. Which just, like, it's not random. When you start dress rehearsing at 60 and, in, or what was the stage? Yeah, 60 and 120 before the final stage. Like, it was the same guys coming to the line every time. A couple removed themselves at the end of stage two really by choice. Uh, Hamlin was one that kind of just bailed out and had had enough. But. It was the same players. And you name the major players that we're always talking about, it feels like, at super speedway races. Blaney, Elliott, Hamlin, Keselowski. And now I think, can we add Eric Jones to that mix over the last couple of years? I mean, Michael McDowell again. I mean, Mike, Michael McDowell and, and Eric Jones. Eric Jones in the next-gen era has definitely shown up. Now, I, I don't know if it's the next-gen era, the Dave Ellens era. They run uh, concurrent. Is my word concurrently? There yeah. you go. There's yeah. the word I'm looking for. I had to go to my thesaurus, Nate Ryan. <laughs> um, but they, you know, they, they run together, so... Is he good at the super speedways because he now has Dave Ellens, or is he good at super speedways because he has the next gen, or is it the combination? But Dave Ellens and Eric Jones in that 43 car look good when we go plate racing. And is it as simple as that these drivers are cerebral or more calculating? I mean, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but all drivers, I guess, have a certain level well, of innate listen, intelligence. All right? drivers in that field have more ability to connect their brain to their hands and their feet to their butt to make a car do what it needs to do. They all do. The weakest driver in that field Sunday is the top one-tenth of one percent stock car drivers in the world, right? Like, like we lose this all the time. We kind of lost faith. We lost touching that when the Danica Erica, you know, it was like, where's Dan? I'm like, okay, guys, you know, she's racing with the top one-tenth of one percent of the entire world. Like, let's understand where she's at, right? Take your best club pro and put him in the, you know, Masters. See how he does. So they're all very talented. What makes those guys better than the other? You know, I, I don't think it, it can be figured out, you know. Like I always say, I don't know if we know every ingredient in the soup. I think it's preparation gets overlooked. You know, everybody wants to talk about simulators and setups, and I think there are ways to prepare for the speedways. Preparation including your spotter. Preparation including your crew chief, making sure he's on the same plan. Being there before, you know, every time you get there, you're better. Sam Mayer lost, hands down, lost the Xfinity Series race through the trial with a move, he will do better next year. Like, he lost it to AJ. He still might have lost it, but if you go back and watch the two different races, the 12 goes to the outside of the 9 in the cup race, and the 9 makes forces him to just keep chasing across lanes, which is making him point away from the start-finish line. The 1 that doesn't force the 16 to do that. Is that the difference? You know, if he forces the 16, and I don't mean hit him, but like just, hey, I'm going to open my wheel up sooner than you and make you point to the outside of the start-finish line, would that be the couple feet that Sam Mayer need? I don't know. I thought he did a great job for a 19-year-old kid. My point is, you know, you can't unlearn what he's learned. He has it. Can't take it away. Doesn't matter what car he's in. You can't take it away. He has it. Eric Jones, he has what he learned in the spring. He looked better in the fall, you know. So I do believe it's, it's clear. Some of it's also they want to be there. Even if they say they don't, they act like they do. There were some drivers that was very clear did not want to be in Talladega. 
some non-playoff drivers, veterans who don't really have much to race for, you noticed were not racing as hard. And, and I'm not judging. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a long season, and, and, and that's a professional. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. And I'm not upset about it, and I'm not judging it. But, you know, those drivers weren't in the picture by their own accord. You know, it wasn't a bad car. It wasn't bad choices. They just said, hey, I'm not doing this. Some guys just bailed out. Uh, I'm going to get to one of those guys a little bit later. But first, I want to talk about, you mentioned that the fact that it was a relatively tame Talladega race. and But the end of the stages, as you described, I heard you describe this earlier today, there's a, sort of this weird phenomenon where each stage has become its own race. And the end of stage one, the end of stage two, the mad scramble between the playoff drivers. And you were interested by the fact that the non-playoff drivers, it's almost like they don't want to get involved in the mix of the playoff drivers battling it out when the points are on the line, where it's a track position race. I mean, they can get in there and kind of really upset the apple cart here, but they kind of almost choose not to, it seems. So it starts with how the races are called. So the first stage had cautions, so throw that one away. Yeah. But the second stage were gas and goes in the middle. Such a tight gas and go, Tyler Reddick ran out of gas coming back to the, the, the checkered at 120. So I was asking myself, why? Why do the non-playoff drivers just say, too bad, I'm going to come take four tires because right. I want to flip the stage. And I think it just comes down to the manufacturer help, right? There's still one of each manufacturer in there. So if you're a Toyota, we expect you to help your Toyota playoff drivers, Ford and Chevy. So when the Chevys all came, they all take gas only because that's what suited the playoff drivers. So I think they are playing along as should, being good soldiers in this, in this war between three manufacturers. And that, I mean, that's fascinating. Like these races are called only to get the lap 60, take a deep breath, four tires, fresh drink of water. Let's run 60 laps more. Another A main. Come back in, fresh drink of water, four tires. All right, now another A main, 68 lap A main. So it, it, it is interesting. And the drivers, I think deep down, you don't want to be, and, and I mean, I can use any name you want, Tyler Reddick, Eric Jones. Do you want to be – does Eric Jones want to walk into the bus lot or the garage at the Roval after catching the bumper of Tyler Reddick to win a stage and wreck six playoff drivers? Man, I, I'd probably avoid – like, you don't yeah. want to do that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what you see. It's not like they just pull out of the way, but, but they have the mittens on for sure. They have their mittens on. Interesting. And as we mentioned, only one multi-car wreck, none in the last 150 laps. This comes after a week of discussions about concussions and unsafe cars, and many have asked, were drivers racing more conservatively because that had been the narrative all week long? And I heard you and Jeff Burton both suggest earlier today that you guys felt this, this wasn't motivated by fear, and you in particular said maybe it was motivated by almost being more physically responsible, that the drivers drove as if they had to pay for the cars they wrecked for the first time and that they finally kind of cared about their equipment. And I think Burton kind of alluded to that as well, saying like this season has been so unpredictable, so much has happened that maybe like discretion was the better part of valor here. Is that kind of what you guys are getting at, that there was a so, kind of a judgment applied here? It wasn't know, necessarily I, I don't ever want fear to be the driving factor to limit a driver's choices or ability. Right? Like, like that's, that's not healthy. Yeah. It shouldn't be fear. Right. But I am totally fine if consequences and the results do. And I want to believe, after all the interviews, you know, I had, you know, Denny Hamlin told us after the race. Overall, good day. Just, uh, yeah, I was able to get Chase to, to push right there to get to the outside. And I thought about, should I go with him and kind of force the 43 up? And I'm like, you know, on the bottom, I always know I've got somebody coming with help behind me. I know I got McDowell. Why did you go with him? I just, you know, then I'd be in the middle, and it just the risk wasn't worth going back to 15th, you know, if I ended up getting stuck in the middle. So, to, to me, it, this is the three-race season that you have, you, you points race. I know Denny very well. 
So I'm like watching him give this interview and I'm kind of reading between the lines. He's kind of almost arguing with himself. I was on the bottom. I knew we needed to get the middle. I wanted to get to the middle, but if I got to the middle, I could get taken three wide. So I stayed in the bottom. Like yeah. he almost just played out literally the last lap in his head. And in the end, he said, I had a good point stay and that's what I wanted. If you watch that Talladega race, out of 188 laps, we're too wide for, I don't know the number, 170, maybe 175. For the green-white checkered, Five miles to determine the victor. We are too wide for 4.6 miles. We don't see three wide until we are well off turn. It doesn't come off at the white. It doesn't come off turn two, coming down the backstretch. It literally is off turn. It's not even off turn four. It's kind of like all the way off turn four in the short shoot heading into the tribals when they finally say, okay, now it's time to go. So that, that's my theory. That's not fear. Yeah. That is, hey, if it doesn't work, I'm only going to lose like five points. If I do it off turn two and get sent into the infield, I'm going to lose 25 points. I mean, there's 30 cars in the lead lap. I mean, that, that is what I think. Now, look, I do believe that when you talk all week long about concussions, it probably is way deep in the back of their mind. I don't think any of those guys are driving around afraid. The conversation about the cars is there. Let's not forget that in the, after cup qualifying, when all the drivers were sitting in their motorhomes, Jordan Anderson took a helicopter ride out of Talladega after a fiery crash in a truck. Thank goodness, from what I've read, he's been released from the hospital with some burns, though. I mean, it, it was a real accident, real scary situation. Helicopter ride needed. Thank goodness he's back in North Carolina and hopefully recovering, you know, back to 100%. But that has to affect your psyche. Right? Nobody has to talk about it. You're watching the same truck race I am. And I only say that because the Xfinity race was very calm. Yes, there was a wreck. The 54 spun down the backstretch, but like... It doesn't seem coincidental that there was, there I was mean, only the last one major wreck in the next two races correct. after that. And yeah. now listen, the cup race, I watched 100 major wrecks that didn't happen. I don't want to make it sound like these guys are riding around there eating ice cream. Like the five one time came off turn two, crossed up by the nine. You could see his door, right? So I think it is a little bit more give and take a little bit more patience, maybe some better driving race cars. We have drivers that have now run 20-something, close to 30 races in the next-gen car, getting used to the steering. I think it's this combination of, you know, because it's not like they weren't pushing. Right? Like they were pu it was just, you know, when you're pushing too wide and you get a guy crossed up, there's a lane and they have two lanes to work with. When you're three wide, you don't get to save it because you start pinballing before your talent can get the car. You know, you need a little bit of real estate. And... Maybe it's just the like trucks can only run too wide. Maybe the crew chiefs are getting the car. Like I'm also not saying that the setups aren't to the way where you don't want to be against the fence. Maybe right. maybe the car and the and the evolution of the setups have driven it back to the bottom. Like where too wide is just sort of the maximum. Yeah, because trucks don't be ever go three lane. wide yeah. ever. Yeah, there is never ever ever a third lane. Now I always thought it was because of the number of trucks and good trucks. But there was really no third lane. In co I mean, there was a couple times, but not many. Certainly a lot more drivers being patient, it seemed. And there was one driver in particular, a playoff driver, who uh, may have been regretting that decision. Joey Logano goes into Talladega with the points lead. And he'd been talking to Stevie for the last couple of weeks about how he didn't like the fact that you can ride in the back and you can finish in the top 10. He was kind of critical of drivers who have done that at Daytona and Talladega in the last couple of years. He said that in recent weeks. And, you know, he says that that's not really how he wants to do it. He feels like you should be rewarded for running up front. But he makes a conscious decision this time to hang back on the last restart to avoid the big wreck. He essentially gets burned by it. He finishes 27th. He's still above the cut line, but not nearly as far ahead of the cut line as he could be if he was in the top 15 or the top 10. If you're him and Paul Wolf, his crew chief, I guess, how do you get past that? That kind of made a plan that kind of backfired on you <laughs> after you'd done it so the other way for so many times. I haven't 
done my first-hand research. My second and third-hand research and a lot of the storylines were that Paul wanted to be a little more conservative because Joey has definitely got in a lot of accidents recently and the data presented was that you need to cruise a little bit. So what I do love about Joey Logano is, you know, from all the sound I heard after the race, he never said, well, my crew chief or my team, you know, whether it was his choice, the team's choice, their choice together, he took the bullet, yeah, which I, I love that. about Joey Logano. Yeah. So I haven't done my first-hand research to decide how they got there, right? Was this a team decision? Was this a Joey Logano decision? Ultimately, he's the only one steering the, the car, but what makes him great is I think he executes the plan as well as anyone in the entire field as far at any racetrack, short pit, long pit, save tire, burn tire. So, you know, it's hard for me to judge because I haven't done my first 10 research on how they ended up back, back there, uh, yeah. but it did seem very out of character for the 22. That's fair. And, you know, as we talked about, I mean, Joey Logano is one of these drivers who's been in these big wrecks at Talladega in recent years. He was very vocal after the wreck he was in, I believe it was last year, that essentially dented his roof after he went airborne. That was part of the reason that they redesigned the next-gen car to have this very strong center section Mm -hmm. to avoid having the indentations and those types of impacts. You did a great job explaining the safety of the next-gen car in the pre-race. And in a week of discussion about the rear end, you kind of explained why it isn't so simple to just replace the rear end. But I also thought it was interesting. Brad Kozlowski, of course, is now a team owner. He said that rear clips are a couple of thousand dollars and that he would have no objections. He doesn't think there'd be any great objections from team owners about replacing them. Rick Hendrick, after Chase Elliott wins the race, Rick Hendrick says... Jordan Bianchi, The Athletic. Uh, there's been a lot of talk this week about safety and, and different solutions or possible solutions that could be implemented. Ultimately, it is going to cost money to, to get whatever that solution is. Yeah. As a team owner, um, are you comfortable having to spend more money on the, this aspect of the next-gen car, something you've already invested a lot in and probably weren't prepared to invest more in? Absolutely. I mean, for sure. Uh, you know, our drivers are so important, we don't want them hurt. And so if it meant buying all new clips Monday morning, I'd do it. I'd be happy to do it because uh, we, we want them safe. And a deal like Alex or Kurt Busch, uh, you know, that's, a t- that's hard. And so I'm, uh, I'm all for whatever it takes. And I think the teams could fix it. But uh, if, we, if, if NASCAR wants to do it, I think everybody working together, we could do it in a hurry, test it and uh, have it on the cars ASAP. So in light of that, I guess I'm still wondering, and you can help explain this, Like, if NASCAR finds things that work at this test that they're doing in Ohio this week on the rear end, if they find things that work, could they implement it for the last few races? I mean, I know obviously the Roval's set, but is Phoenix set? Is everything set at this point? So can they possibly, is it feasible you know, I don't know. I, I don't think that the chassis supplier perhaps has the resources or the ability, even if they work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to have enough for all of the teams to put their cards together to go to Las Vegas. So, so this whole conversation, I think, this is how I see this entire conversation. And it, and it took a quote, Rick, I'm going to give Rick Allen the credit. We were talking about the wrecks, and he goes, man, I was just shocked because, you know, the Alex Bowman hit didn't look bad. And Dale Jr. was like, it didn't look, man, it was a huge hit. And it was it. And he was very animated about it. And I was trying to, I'm like, man, both, you know, Dale Jr. is obviously wrecked and Rick has him. Rick's watched a bunch of races. I'm like, where is there such a disconnect? And then I found I have the same disconnect. So, Nate, I've never wrecked a car, ever. Never driven a car into a wall. But I've worked on them. I've seen them. I've crew chiefed them. 
So I analyze wrecks and the severity of the wreck by the speed in which the car goes in, the angle in which the car goes in, but by substantially how the car looks post-wreck. When a car is destroyed, that was a big wreck. Look at the car. So I fall guilty with Rick that when I watch the Bowman wreck or the Truex wreck, which he said on the radio hurts, and 200 laps later he's leading the race, I think these are benign wrecks because the car looks intact. So if the car is intact and the driver says it hurts, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a, that, in my mind, is the fundamental problem. Now, I think everybody, I think NASCAR would tell you the back's too stiff. The drivers would tell you the back's too stiff. They, this test that's this week isn't just like prompted from the conversations last week. This is from weeks and months. So I really believe this whole conversation is really this, and it's whether it's safety or steering racks or fires in the rocker panel or whatever it is. The car now is controlled by the industry and the parent company NASCAR. I say the industry because I do believe everybody gets a little bit of vote and hand in this. But in the end, NASCAR. So what is an acceptable design cycle? Like, What's acceptable? Is it acceptable that the cars have been stiff the whole year and we're 29 races in and we haven't, we have worked? I'm not going to say no one's working on it. That's inaccurate. People have worked a lot. But nothing has been enacted. Nothing has changed on the car to, as a result of that work. And that's because they're trying to do all their due diligence. So I'm not trying to let anyone off the hook here, but the real question is, is a season the right design cycle? Is that acceptable? Is it 10 races? Is it five races? Like what is the correct and acceptable design cycle for improvements? And should it remain the same for all? Should safety be paramount? My gut tells me, I can argue two sides. I believe NASCAR is trying to redesign the back of this car as correctly as possible to get it right where they feel they probably didn't get it right the first time because they don't want to miss it the second time. That takes a long time. Now, the second side is if we went to Dover and broke right front uprights, you know, we wouldn't go to Bristol with the same uprights. There would have been a change. So, you know, I don't know what triggers there are, and it's a brand new car, but it's 85 or 90% correct. So, you know, I don't know how you trigger that thing at a race team. I had to run a race team. When I was controlling the car, it was very simple. Everyone thought I worked on making it go fast. No. I made it work, run every mile first. That was my number one job. So every Monday when I reviewed the last races, there's something I know that would limit us from running every mile next week. Did somebody break apart? Did one of my teammates break apart? That was my number one priority. And then I went from there to trying to go fast, right? So it's, yeah. so that's really, it's the design cycle that's in question. It's no one's intent. It's no one's this. And... If Alex Bowman doesn't drop out, if he is the same hit, hurts just as bad, but the end result is not these concussion symptoms, does the new cycle even change? You kind of get what I mean? It's, yeah, I get it's, what you mean. I, I empathize with the drivers. I think they have every right to be upset that 30 weeks is too long. But I don't know the correct answer, though. Yeah. Right? And, this is, and now I also want to say this, because then Denny said, hey, the whole car needs to be redesigned. I want to say this. Never should the car not be worked on. It's like we were talking earlier, your iPhone update. I just got up to what is it, iOS something <laughs> or other. Like, so my iOS point 16 is, right there. Yeah. you have the box. I think yeah. the next gen box does it look cool? It does, you know, yada, yada, yada. There should be a permanent list at all times of what's being worked on. Right. And the priority order could be set. Safety obviously should be paramount. I think it should be safety one. It should be 
you know, making sure the most cars can run all the miles because that's what the you know that's what the fans come to watch. So that should be one. And then the quality of the race should be right in there. There's all these, but there should always be a list. Like after we fix the back, and the drivers are like, "Thank you, it's softer, it's acceptable." Okay, well, what's next? We don't just go on vacation. Yeah. Okay, what's next? Well, steering seems to be an issue. Maybe that's it. Or is it the quality of the racing and short tracks? Or is it like it's it's okay? This this car should be in evolution, always. The next-gen car should never be. Like I told you, it should be like next-gen 1.01. Right, right. And we should have the 01 to 02 to 03 to 04 small updates that the fans might not even see. But then if, say, it's after the decimal, maybe it's 1.10. Well, maybe the fans see that one, right? (laughs) But then at some point, we're going to go two-point something. And that's a major, man. That's That's the iPhone upgrade. That's the iPhone upgrade. That's going to take a while. But, hey, but just remind all the fans, (laughs) have you ever updated your iPhone and be like, well, I don't know how this works now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I used to swipe up. Now I swipe down. And I used to thumb print. Now I, uh, man, now I just stare at my phone. Like, so, so, but, but let's not like, Danny almost alluded to it. It could still be called next gen. Yeah. What I heard there is this is the car, but in five years, we're still going to have a next gen car. It could have none of the same parts. Yeah. It could be totally new. 4.0, 5.0, Correct. whatever. But should they then have applying what you're just saying right there, which I think is brilliant analogy and insight, like for 2023, should they have like a, okay, design cycle, you know, race five, race 10, race 25. We're going to have updates at each of these points. I want a public ownership of the car. That's what I want. I know who they all are, and I'm not going to put their names out there because I don't work for NASCAR. I want – NASCAR has a million responsibilities. TV negotiations, marketing, schedule, safety, communications, how how they run the races, cautions. I mean, it's it's endless – Right? We know who the race directors are. We know who the cup directors are. I want the next-gen car director. When this guy is in charge of the car, and he's going to be my point communication about the car. He's going to give us consistent updates about the car. Now, he don't have to get in the mud. Like, you know, there, there's a line. Like, you don't have to tell us every nut and bolt, widget and gidget we're changing. But, hey, man, version 2.0, we expect to test here, and we're going to put it on track here. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's what I'm looking for. And now I uh, now listen, that's not a when I say a guy, I mean a guy who runs a department. This isn't a one man band. Like one, two, three people can't design a race car. I mean you you're gonna need a lot, a lot of people. There are definite issues with the next gen car, drivers are complaining. I completely agree with them. For a entirely new race car, we have been fortunate to not have many issues. Now, the issue we do have is a very severe one. It needs to be addressed. But overall, I would give it a pretty high passing grade at the moment. Let's wrap up by talking Roval. And the first question I have, so William Byron comes out of Talladega scoring no stage points. As we sit here on Monday, we know he has an appeal hearing on Thursday where he could have some of his points restored from Texas. Do you like Hendrick Motorsports' case for getting any of those points back. I know it's really difficult to predict an appeal here. I don't know what their case is, but I don't like the points penalty at all. I think it's absolutely the wrong um, approach to the infraction for both Ty Gibbs and William Byron. When I look at points, I look at your car was found to be illegal. The pit guns you used were illegal. The wheels you put on your car were illegal. I don't care if they were an advantage or disadvantage. That's not the point. There's parameters in which all those things are supposed to be, and yours was supposed to be operated with them, and they weren't. I take a completely different approach to this. I look at both Ty Gibbs on pit road and William Byron as purely it's time for the drivers to be held accountable for their vehicles when they're on pit road or under yellow. I don't want to referee drivers under green because that's called racing. 
And while you can still gain and lose position both on pet road and on yellow, safety should be paramount and should trump all. And I don't care. I'll go one further. At Darlington, we saw Anthony Alfredo, I think it was Anthony Alfredo, hit John Hunter Nemechek. I think he might have got sick or something like that. I would have fined him. That would have been a much lesser fine because I don't think any intent was there. But I would have said, hey, Anthony, I'm sorry, but it's your responsibility to operate your vehicle in a safe manner under caution. We have safety workers. We We watched a truck on fire through turn four or turn two at Talladega, and all I wanted to see was the safety workers there. The only way they get there quicker is if everybody plays nice under you. Like, you got to give these people room. So that's the problem I have with William Byron. I don't like points because I don't associate it. Now, 50 grand ain't what I'm thinking. I'm like 250 grand or 300 grand. I mean, like a major financial fine. I think 25 points is gigantic. Five regular season wins. Yeah. In a three race schedule, that's like 150 points. That penalty is gigantic. But I'll also say I don't like points in general. I would have fined a lot of Ty Gibbs and a lot of William Byron. I then would have sent out a, a memo to the drivers that said, gentlemen, we now have in-car cameras in every car. We have SMT on every car. Please be aware that you and you alone are expected to operate your vehicle safely on pet road and operate your vehicle safely under a yellow flag condition. If we choose you don't, you will be penalized. You will be fined. I mean, it's kind of like, what does the NFL find? Like wrong uniforms and arguing with an official. It's the same idea. Like, we have to got to control those two men. We can't let I love the intensity of racing, but we gotta we gotta find and not listen, I'm as guilty as everybody. Hey, here's your pit road speed. You need to do better. Save cost save gas under yellow. Like we're asking these drivers to do all these different things which are making these quote rest periods. We used to have not rest periods. <laughs> yeah. It's time for NASCAR to gobble that back up a little bit and be like, I don't care what your teams are asking you, you the driver. Now, if your crew chief or your spotter do something to create this unsafe, then I'm gonna find them too. But I think on pit road and under yellow, safety would be what the penalty was for. Right. So Byron, as of now, 11 points under the cut line. Christopher Bell, 33 points under the cut line. He comes into the Roval, pretty much must win. Alex Bowman, we're still waiting here at this point if he'll return, but he's obviously in a must win situation. And then you have Chase Briscoe and Austin Sindrick currently tied at what would be the cut line. So handicap the Rovo for me. Last road course race of the year. What do you think we'll see in the second round cutoff race? I think everybody will run through the finish of stage one. So if you don't qualify well, you're going to miss stage points. I think everybody's going to then pit once and run through the finish of stage two. So there's going to be no hiding and no trickery to try to get some stage points. And stage points are going to be vital. And then it's a question whether you stop two or three times. Do you stop at lap 50 or run long into that third stage and only stop twice? I say that knowing that every Roval is chaos. It has nothing to do with what I just said. We had <laughs> Kyle Larson pit right. five times after an alternator. We had uh, Chase Elliott hit the wall and then win. And both win. And yeah. we have Ryan Blaney <laughs> win after, you know, a seven-time champ. Rex a one-time champ or could be a three-time champ. March Series Jr. Like, it's yeah. chaos when we go to the Roval. I think you have it right. Bowman's a must-win. To be quite honest, I don't even care about the points. I just want to see Bowman back in a race car. Yeah. I think the 20, Christopher Bell, talk about highs and lows. He's in a must-win. I have the three, uh, the big four Bs out. I have Bowman, Bell, Briscoe, Briscoe, and Byron. And Byron, assuming the penalty stays the way it stays. All right. Well, we can all watch NBC Sunday with this man, Steve Letarte. Thanks for joining us on the NASCAR NBC podcast, Steve. You appreciate hey, it. Nice, quiet week. It was fun. <laughs> we appreciate Steve Letarte for joining us on the NASCAR NBC podcast. Thanks to producer Aaron Feldstein and motorsports manager Emily Conboy for coordinating Stevie's appearance. The NASCAR Cup Series heads to the Charlotte Motor Speedway Roval this weekend. 
Coverage gets started Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on NBC. Check out NBCSports.com slash NASCAR for detailed schedules, start times, and coverage, as always. And every Thursday at 10 p.m. Eastern on USA Network, it's the new docuseries Race for the Championship. This is the inside look at the 2022 NASCAR Cup Series season. In the world of NASCAR, every driver has their story. The new docuseries Race for the Championship will give you an all-access pass behind the scenes like you've never seen before. Catch Race for the Championship Thursdays at 10 Eastern, 9 Central on USA Network. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast.